Hey, I'm Russ Bailey, and you are listening to Screen Playing, the podcast where I interview working screenwriters and ask them how they broke into Hollywood. Today, I am with my friend Sean Collins-Smith. Sean, how are you? I'm good, man. Thanks for having me. I'm so glad you're here. It's um, This is actually like our first time getting to chat face-to-face. Um, we have a mutual acquaintance. We'd, uh, we'd both worked with uh, Matt over at Script Pipeline, and he connected us. Yeah, yeah, Matt's a good guy. Script Pipeline's a great company. I love it. Uh, my history is it was my very first job out in LA. And if you guys haven't heard of Script Pipeline, they are a full service script development company. They have one of the best screenwriting contests in the biz. Uh, look them up. Uh, that said, for our listeners, uh, Sean, could you tell us a little bit about you, a little bit about uh, the shows that you've worked on? Sure. Yeah, I'll, I'll give like the kind of concise, um, you know, version, which is that basically I grew up in Richmond, Virginia. And uh, after winning and placing in multiple competitions and fellowships, some network sponsored, some tied to like, you know, script competitions and festivals, um, I moved out to L.A. with my wife uh, almost exactly four years ago to the day, actually. Um, and uh, after a few years, you know, getting repped, getting agents and all that stuff, I hopped on Field of Dreams, which was Mike Shore's reboot on it was going to be on Peacock since it has, you know, been dropped and it's being shopped around elsewhere. And then the next show after that was uh, Chicago PD on NBC. And that's where I'm on right now. It's uh, it's my first season, but it's the 10th season of that show. Wow, that's incredible. So out of curiosity, um, do you have a screenwriting background before those shows and before that contest or uh, what's your background in writing? Yeah, that's a great question. I uh, So I, I like to say like 80, 80% no, 20% yes in terms of screenwriting background because I, I got... So I got degrees in journalism and business when I was in college, but I also got a degree in... Uh, the degree was technically called cinema, um, but it was writing intensive. So we when we left out of there, and writing intensive is in quotes, because we only really had one feature written when the whole program was done. Uh, but they did not dive into TV writing at all. I didn't learn anything about TV writing in those classes. And I graduated college back in 2010. And then I got a master's in journalism in 2012. And then I just worked in journalism for the next... Actually, before I even finished the master's, I was working in journalism and, and continued working in it for close to a decade some full-time, sometimes freelance for NBC. But most of my writing experience was journalism. In fact, I'd say like 99% of it was in journalism. And I hadn't really... I hadn't written a TV pilot until around 2016, 2017. That was the first time that I took a deep dive into that. And when I did that, it was after having read several pilots, most of which were pretty famous, you know, Breaking Bad, Mad Men, The Leftovers. But one specifically, it was an un unmade pilot i think it was called beautiful people it was a science fiction thing about like androids and stuff um i'd imagine no one's even ever heard of it because it didn't go to pilot but i loved the writing and so after that was that cemented it when i read that i was thinking okay i can do this and i'd been sitting on an idea for a script for like 10 years and you know i eventually thought okay maybe that'll be my first pilot i love that would you say that Getting in your first room, was it having the background in journalism that got you there? Was it placing in contests that got you there? What was kind of the trajectory? I mean, that that is 
a great question that has so many layers to it that I, I would feel like I wasn't giving multiple people their credit if I didn't answer it in a multi-layered way. I, I would say the most concise way I can answer that is it's just a combination of probably five or six things. One was placing in competitions because I, again, I tried, I'll try to make this quick, but you know, I won the IFA Fast Track Fellowship in 2018 with two separate pilots and that got me my first manager. That is what drove me to move to LA because he said, you know, if you sign with me, you should move out here. So that is part one of the journey, right? Which is even coming out to the West Coast. I left that manager after about 18 months, signed with another manager that I met because of the Austin Film Festival. So that's part two of it, which is, okay, I was in LA. I needed to get another manager. The Austin Film Festival and its million connections that you can make on the ground. I made one of those connections in 2017 when I was a finalist. And that came full circle when I signed with a manager in 2020. So that's, you know, part two. And then part three was using my journalistic acumen to write uh, multiple scripts, some of which were based on true stories and had to do with heavy research. So it's a combination of all those things, right? Which is try to write great scripts, try to enter them into the competitions that truly matter, which I'd say there's maybe half a dozen, including Script Pipeline, which we just talked about, and the Austin Film Festival. Try to use that momentum to make connections and query or whatever you have to do. And then when all that stuff gets balled up, you hope that the one or two or three showrunners meetings you can take in a six-month span, you hope that one of them sticks. And so that that's a very long-winded way to answer what I think was a generic question. <laughs> so I apologize. No, it's it's I love hearing each writer's story because each writer's like career launch story is different. Um and uh, often writers ask me, like, should I be submitting to contests? Should I be out in LA? Uh, and so on. And, you know, hearing your story helps. Uh, you said, uh, Austin Film Festival, you said script pipeline. What are some other contests that you recommend? So I can only go by my own experiences. I try not to go too much by, you know, what I hear unless it's like truly undeniable. So my own experience, the ISA Fast Track Fellowship really did help me a lot. So I recommend that. In fact, when I entered, it was only like 25 bucks. So it's pretty cheap. Um, I would say Roadmap Riders has a great track record in terms of getting people prepped. They got me my agents. Full disclosure, I did not pay like to, I didn't pay for a Roadmap Riders competition. What I did was they had a free initiative, which they have several throughout the year. And it was, people of color submitting pilots and Joey Tuccio or one of his execs would read the first 10 pages. And if they liked it, then either they or Joey would try to send it to some agents and Joey read mine, uh, read the first 10 pages, loved it, read the rest of it, loved it, hit me up and said, I want to send these to these seven or eight agencies. And, you know, as is the, the, the credo in this town, all it takes is one. Yes. Right. And so step six of the eight said, no, when Joey sent him the script or sent them the script, one of the eight didn't even read. They read the log line. They were like, no, this isn't for us. And the eighth one uh, read and loved and I signed with them and they are A3. They used to be Abrams, but then they rebranded about three or four years back. Um, and so, but that's just an example of how you can submit to one free thing and it snowballs and you end up getting reps, right? And so that's why I say Roadmap is pretty good because I got a lot of free initiatives out there they do for people. And... If I'm going to list a few more, I would say I've heard that the nickel has a good track record. In fact, one of the people in my writer's room right now got 
his rep and then got on Chicago PD, I think maybe seven years ago. So he's been in there for a while, but he got all of that because of a placement in the nickel fellowship. Uh, and it wasn't even, he didn't even win. He got like a yeah. semi finalist or something. Um, so I've heard that can really make waves for people. And uh, I, I've heard that, well, I, I've benefited from the screencraft uh, pilot launch. I was a runner up in one of theirs. And then I was a finalist with two other scripts for them over the last four years. And they've gotten me some general meetings and I've heard that they've also gotten people rep. So that's another one that's, that's pretty big too. To get in a writer's room, do you think it's necessary to have an agent or manager up front? Like should writers be pursuing representation or are there other routes as well? I, oof, that, that's a really good question. I can, I can kind of answer that in a bifurcated way for me personally. I would not be in writer's rooms right now if I didn't have reps. Now, I'm not saying it would be impossible, but the connections, I mean, again, I've already gone over my life story in a succinct way, but as someone who came 3,000 miles away from Virginia, I did not have the connections when I came out here. I had one manager who then I dropped 18 months later amicably, but you know, my first thought after that was I got to get repped again because I do not have the connections in this town and by that point, I'd only been here for a year and a half. So I didn't really have, uh, I hadn't laid the foundation to make those connections. So for me personally, I need them. But I've talked to others. Like I, I have a good friend who was with me in the Field of Dreamers writer's room. She had the last three shows she's been on. She was on Field of Dreams. And before that, she was on two seasons of the Say by the Bell reboot on Peacock. And then before that, she was on another show. She got all those by herself. Now, she has reps, uh, and I don't want to say who this person is because I don't want to like put the reps on the spot, but she has told me point blank that she got those through her own connections and that she feels like her reps aren't pulling their weight. Now, I've heard both sides of this story. I've heard my side, which is my reps are getting me work and I love them, and I've heard the other side, which is they aren't pulling their weight and I'm thinking about cutting them loose. So that's, to, to me, that's kind of the two, you know, you're going to hear both both takes if you come out to hollywood you're going to hear one person say i love my agent you're going to hear someone else say i hate my manager you're going to hear someone else say a uh, possible third thing all i have is a lawyer i don't have a manager or an agent i know a guy who got repped and all he had was a lawyer at the time so it's it's a very you know there, there's no one way to answer it the biggest thing is i think you need reps who have good connections and who you know are you know pounding the pavement for you because if you have a rep who's at a big agency but you are kind of a small fish there. There's the whole cliche thing, right? Which is that you might not have anyone paying attention to you. But if you have a rep who's at a small boutique company, but is young and hungry and is like doing everything they can to get you repped, which I know a few like that, then that could be, you know, your ticket. And so, but for me personally, the reps, 100%, I, I needed a rep to get into my room one and room two. They're the ones who sent my stuff to the showrunners. They're the ones who set up the meetings. And they're the ones who closed my deals for me. So it was a full circle. You know, they handled all 360 degrees of that situation. I love that. And for me, like what I'm really taking away from it is it's a fast track to networking. It's it's knowing somebody that's already had 10 years worth of of networking with producers and and directors and showrunners. Um, and and again, then they can make those introductions for you. Oh, yeah. I mean, I I got one agent, his, his name is Martin. And he will say, hey, look, I set you up a meeting with with John Doe. I met John Doe 12 years ago when we were both interns here. And now he he's an executive or he's, he's a VP here. Before that, he was an executive here. And I used to send him stuff. 
And now he just became the VP of this company and he's looking to take the next step with some pilots. And it's like, you can't, I mean, I essentially, like you said, they're, your reps are bringing their years of experience to the table for you. And if they can bring that years of experience to the table for you and use that to get you in the room, I mean, that's what you're asking for, right? That's that's what we're doing here. So is there any, uh, for you, is there a difference between a manager and an agent and an entertainment lawyer? Uh, mm. Is there one that you would want before the other or have they all been useful for you? They were all useful for me. I actually do not have a lawyer at the moment, but I have a good friend. Um, his name's John Salzerni. He's uh, the head of Bellevue uh, Production slash Management. And he told me that before I reach the next, you know, because uh, I'm about to hit story editor. And he was saying before you hit executive story editor or even the one after that, you should consider getting a lawyer because they can help negotiate a better contract for you. I've heard stories of lawyers getting people really good things uh, in their contracts that they would not have gotten if the lawyer had not looked it over. Now, obviously, that's another 5% because the manager is going to take 10, the agent's going to take 10, the, the, the lawyer, if you have them, is going to take five. So the question you got to ask yourself is, is my team worth the 25% that they're taking of my weekly paycheck, which for staff writers on up is pretty considerable. So you're, you're not hurting for money at that point. But if it's the only job you're going to have and say 50 weeks and it's a 20 week room, you really got to do the calculations in your head and be like, are, are they worth the 25% that they're taking out of my pocket? And so, but I mean, that's, that's my read of the landscape for lawyers, for agents and managers. Most people I talk to get managers first because they're going to help. They're going to help foster your career and help make you better writers. Agents, not to overgeneralize, but most of the time, agents aren't really going to do that. They will give you notes on stuff, but they're, they have the grid, quote unquote, the grid. And that grid is going to help them staff people. And so whereas your manager may also help staff, a lot of these agencies are staffing machines. That's one of the reasons they exist. And so... I would say most of the time people should focus on getting a manager first. But honestly, maybe the broader answer to that is get whoever can help get you in the room, right? Yeah. And and so, like I said, if it's a lawyer, if all you have is a lawyer, once you get that first staffing, um, you know, the, the the contract comes your way and you just want to have a lawyer look over it, but you don't have a manager or an agent, then God bless, you know, give that lawyer his 5% and you get to keep 95%. But I would say a lot of times the manager comes first, usually. Besides a contest, do you have any other recommendations of how an aspiring screenwriter can land a manager? Oof. I can I can point to different examples. I mean, for me personally, both actually, God, all my first rep and then my second rep and then my agents all kind of either explicitly or tangentially came from competitions. Um, I would say in addition to just submitting to some top tier ones going on the ground to the Austin film festival is huge. Even if you didn't submit, I would suggest going. That's how I got my second rep was now I, in fairness, I did submit and I was a finalist, but some people go there without submitting and just hang out at the Driscoll bar for five straight days and meet reps and meet agents and meet lawyers and meet execs. And that's how they end up querying and, and getting these meetings. So that's one thing going on the ground to Austin. Um, another way I would say would be querying. I know multiple people, including my really good friend, Saeed Crumpler, 
If you are on Twitter at all, people listening to this, his handle is Balance510. And the reason I'm mentioning his Twitter account is because he has posted and I think pinned on his Twitter account an article he wrote, and it's just called like, how a writer from the Bay Area queried and got a manager or something. And it was written for the Final Draft website. So if you Google site Crumpler Final Draft, you'll see his whole story about how he's essentially a music producer slash writer who queried and got a manager. And now he just got an overall deal at Sony Television. Um, and he has been in the room for, uh, oh, what is it called? Flatbush Misdemeanors. But he got his manager by querying. I mean, he straight up sent a very succinct, uh, straight-to-the-point query letter. And that's my biggest recommendation if outside of the competition circuit is query letters. I would also say... Google how Saeed did it and Google how other managers like what they expect to be in query letters. Cause that's the biggest mistake people make when they query is they either write it too long. It's like eight paragraphs. No manager wants to read an eight paragraph query. Um, they don't include the log line. They do include the log line, but they also attach a script, which is an automatic delete. So make sure you're checking out how to write proper queries because I mean, people like to complain and say the odds are against you. And it's like, dude, the odds are against you no matter what. They're against you in competitions. What are the odds? Like one winner out of 10,000? I mean, come on, what are we talking about? And so if you send 40 queries and you get five requests, that's what, one out of eight? That's not a bad you know, percentage, especially compared to competitions. So and that would be my three biggest ones. Submit the comps, go to the ground in Austin, and, and query emails. I love that. Um... Oh, we'll both have a sip of our water real quick. There you go. Love it. Before submitting for a representation, what type of body of work do you think you need to have ready? I would say at the very least, you have to have two scripts that have been put through the ringer and that have gotten notes and then have either halfway decent placement in prominent competitions or your reads, the reactions have been so, I hate to use the U word, but have been so undeniable that you know you're there. Um, <clears throat> I'll tell a quick quick little anecdote. When I won the ISA Fast Track Fellowship, I won it with two pilot scripts, my, my first pilot and then my second pilot. Um, and they flew me out to Los Angeles here for a week They on their dime, which was great. They set me up with a bunch of general meetings. And a couple of those general meetings are with managers, one at Zero Gravity, um, one was with my first manager over at Silent R Management. And I took the initiative to set up a couple of general meetings myself with managers. So I set up a, a meeting with a guy I had met at one of these film festivals I talked about. Uh, he was a rep at Circle of Confusion. So I go in for the meeting with him, and uh, he's very nice. The guy's name is Ashley Burns. He's over at Lee Entertainment now. He's still a manager. Uh, great guy. Gave me some great advice that and during that general but one of the things he said was you know look i love this script uh it's it's very cool it's well written but um you know he didn't say i don't want to rep you what he essentially said was i need to read another script of yours at some point so please send it to me and then i told him well i'm uh, the reason i'm here is because i want a fellowship with two scripts you, you've read one of them but i've got this other one i guess i guess I did, either i didn't send it to you or maybe you just didn't have a chance to read it and his demeanor completely changed. He, he didn't have an icy demeanor before that point, but it was very, like, I don't know, it, it was it was a meeting, right? But then when I said I have a second one, he almost kind of, like, stood up straight, and he was like, wait, there's, there's another script, right? And what that told me was reps, no matter who it is, no matter what house they're at, 
unless your script is 100% undeniable, they need at least two. They need to be able to show that, okay, you can write a good script and you can do it again. Because if you were, for all they know, it took you 10 years to write this script. So are they going to sign you and nurture your career for a decade before you get into one room? I mean, I know we, we want to live in an altruistic society that's completely selfless, but these guys only get paid if you get paid. And so asking someone to nurture your career for a decade when they don't get a cent out of you is, is a huge ask. And so I could tell when he knew I had a second script, it was like, oh, okay, this guy might be for real. This guy might actually be a potential client. And, they, and then to his credit, he read it a few weeks later, and uh, which is a fast read for a rep, by the way, and called me and offered to rep me. And I couldn't accept it because I had already accepted representation from someone else. But um, I mean, but that opened my eyes to the fact that if you really want to get repped, you got to have more than one script. It can't just be the one, unless it's the best fucking script ever written. And even then, they might want to just kind of, there's a term called hip pocketing. They might want to just hip pocket you, try to, try to move that one script, either get it, you know, uh, out on the market or something. And then maybe you're not even their permanent client unless you've written another second script. And so that's the biggest thing, right? Two, at least, right? Two. Out of curiosity, um, kind of, two questions in terms of this material. Um, the first question is for the TV writer. Do you think there's any value in writing specs anymore or should somebody have two original pilots? So in terms of like what you have, that's, that's the first question really. Is there any value anymore in having written a spec or would you point people towards original pilots? I mean, I personally, it's hard to answer this question because I know there's some people who die, live and die by specs. So like, yes, specs all the way. And to their credit, a couple of these people that I know who say that the specs have helped them. The vast majority of people that I know that have gotten into rooms, specifically live action, not animation, it's been because of their original pilots, not because of specs. In fact, you're going to see a predominantly large amount of showrunners who don't even want to read specs because they're afraid they'll get sued. Uh, and so... I my biggest thing is I would I would err on the side of two original pilots because a lot of these showrunners want to see what your original voice is like, um, and they will just hope that you can adapt that voice to their vision if they put you in the room, right? So that's that's my short answer to what is undeniably a multi layered, uh, complicated question. <laughs> yeah, when when the aspiring screenwriter is writing their original pilot. I know some screenwriters are thinking, I'm going to sell this thing. And usually I'm saying, actually, this is probably going to be a writing sample that's going to help you get staffed. Do you think one of those career routes is more realistic than another? I would say the odds are definitely leaning toward your sample getting you into a room as opposed to it getting sold. Now, it's not impossible, uh, you know, but usually, I mean, I'll give you an example. My, my reps basically told me, look, our, our dream for you, our goal for you, our direction for you is to get you in some rooms, get you some onset experience, which in 2022 slash 2023 here in the next, what, four and a half weeks, um, getting into getting onto a set is kind of impossible for a lot of people. I've talked to people who've been on their fifth show right now in the last seven years, and they still haven't been on set because streamings, like streaming services usually don't send writers to set. So my rep said, look, our goal is to get you in multiple rooms. We want to get you on set. We want to build your credit so that when 
we start to try to sell your stuff, we can say, hey, John has been on set. He's been on procedurals and prestigious stuff. He's been on streaming stuff and broadcast stuff. Um, and he's got the experience that comes with being on set. He's a total package. Now, to me, that's extremely pragmatic. And I'm on board 100%. I think that's a fantastic career direction to go in. Um, but there's others who say, no, I just want to stay in my day job. I make Maybe they do accounting or something, and they're making a couple hundred thousand a year. And they're like, look, I want to stay in my day job, but I'm going to try to write good enough pilots to get sold. Uh, and I want to get reps and all that stuff. I, I mean, that's a little going to be far more difficult, I think, because a lot of times the way you sell stuff is you build up experience in the room, you build up connections in and outside of the room with showrunners, with other writers, and then that's what leads you to get those opportunities. So I would say that is probably the more practical, pragmatic direction I would suggest people go in, or, or at least mentally prepare themselves for. Because I've been there, man. I finished writing a pilot, and I've been like, this is the best fucking thing I've ever written. This is going to sell. This ain't a sample. This is something that's going to be on TV, motherfucker. And then after a couple months go by and you're like, what was I thinking? This is a sample, obviously. Like, um, And so, yeah, I mean, I was talking to the guy at the Atlanta Film Festival about four years back, but he wrote Arrival. He was nominated for an Oscar for Arrival. Um, and he's written a whole bunch of other stuff, too. But I asked him point blank, how many things have you written that have never gotten made? And he told me the vast majority. Like, like 98% of the things he's written either got, like most of them didn't get sold, but the ones that did get sold never went to pilot. And the ones that went to pilot never got picked up to air. Right. And it's like, that's just the odds of this business, man. And so if you can tell yourself, I wrote something that is a representation of my voice, as opposed to if this doesn't get made, I'm a failure, then that's a lot healthier for you on, on all fronts. That's my favorite thing you've said so far today. Everything you've said has <laughs> been awesome, but man, like that, Oh, that hits hard. Like hits home. That's what I mean. Like that's, that's such great advice. Uh, totally agree that that's where the heart has to be. Otherwise it's just painful. <laughs> yeah. You know? So also in terms of your writing sample, do you think there's any value in having both features and TV pilots in your arsenal? Or do you think that somebody should focus like just on TV, if they want to write for TV, just on features, if they want to write features? Yeah. So, you know, the guy I mentioned earlier who got into the Chicago PD room with his semifinalist nickel script, I mean, that was the feature because they only accept features for that competition. And so he obviously had his hand in both pies, which was he could he could do TV and he can do film. Now, is that rare, you know, that you use a feature script to get into a TV room? From what I've heard, the, the stats are like kind of 80, 20, 80 percent. You get into the room with a pilot, 20 percent. You can't get in with a feature if it's good enough and, and fits the vision of the showrunner enough. But I would say that to answer your question explicitly, a lot of it depends on what what reps you have and what their vision for you is. Now, if your reps see you as a pure TV writer, they might try to steer you away from features. Now, I know some writers who have reps just for feature writing and reps just for TV writing because they're adamant that they want to do both. And maybe they're more successful in TV, but they're like, but I have this these great ideas for features. And so they have reps in both. I know other writers whose team have just basically said, look, you need to stick with TV. Now, my team, to use myself as an example, they haven't really steered me either way. They haven't just said, hey, Sean, we only want you to do TV. Um, and in fact, I have a feature which they're going to probably go out with this spring. They have not steered me away from doing that. They, you know, it, it's a very high concept kind of 
sci-fi horror thing. But for them, I guess what they see is if it's good writing, then it's good writing. And they'll try to sell it or use it to get me meetings or OWAs. But at the very least, it's another sample that's representative of my voice. So I don't think there's any huge pressure from what I've seen and heard for people to only focus on TV or only focus on feature. Unless your team explicitly says, hey, we only rep TV writers or hey, we only rep feature writers and we need you to focus on that. That's that's great advice. So it sounds more like uh, write what you love, write what you enjoy, and and then if you're steered one way or another, you know, take that advice. Sure. Yeah. Pretty much. Um, what is it like uh, working in a writer's room? Specifically, let's talk about Chicago PD since that's what you're working on now. What's what's that environment like? Yeah, that's man. It's such an interesting question because Chicago PD for me personally is unlike any room I've ever been in and honestly this is only my second room so that's not saying much but as it as like more evidence to that I'll tack on everyone else I've talked to has said that it's also unlike any other room they've ever worked in and what I mean by that is so the first and also I think it's a it's a byproduct of the pandemic as well but so the first two weeks in the room we were in person everyone's pitching ideas the showrunner and her number two, um, her and him both have their thoughts on what the overall arc of the season is. And we're following that to the T because th- those are marching orders. So you got to do what they say. And rightfully so, because they're both brilliant. And so what we do after that is we start pitching ideas to fulfill that vision. And after a couple weeks, we kind of go off on our own after we pitched our individual episodes and they've been approved. And we start outlining those episodes. Now, what's interesting is we have not met in person since then. And, you know, we have some meetings on Zoom, some one-on-one with the showrunner, some as a group. But a lot of this stuff is almost kind of like, um, I, I would refer to it as like a, it's, it is work from home. But it's almost like independent study in a way, because you're doing your own episode. And they're counting on you to finish the stuff uh, in the deadlines that they have provided. So it's not like you're coming into a room every single day and everyone's reading your stuff every single day. This is a very individualistic type thing. I mean, it's a procedural, right? So you can afford to do that stuff. Right. Um, and to and I know you mentioned Chicago PD specifically, but what I'll do is I'll add on Field of Dreams to show kind of the dichotomy between these the differences between these two rooms. Field of Dreams was kind of the opposite. We met every single day, uh, sometimes in person, sometimes over Zoom. Uh, and there was constant communication because Field of Dreams was a limited series, uh, kind of, um, like everything was connected. It was very serialized, right? So a limited series, serialized seven episode thing where everything connects to the other thing. You can't accomplish that without meeting every single day as a team. It's just impossible. And so both experiences have been very different, but they've both been very rewarding and very positive. I mean, the sh- both showrunners are incredible. Both rooms are great. The writers in both were amazing. And yeah, I mean, to me, it's been like getting PhDs back to back in totally different subjects because Field of Dreams is like this kind of charming, uh, limited series, you know, serialized thing about sports. And Chicago PD is like a dark, gritty procedural where every episode someone dies or, or multiple people die. And by the end of it, you've solved the crime and then come back next week for more, right? So they're very, very different, but they've been great experiences. Her Field of Dreams, with it being a limited series with seven episodes, 
uh, as a staff writer for that, were you assigned one episode? Were you assigned two? What did what did your homework look like, if you will, for that season or for that show? Yeah, sure. And like, I'll, I have to give all the credit in the world to Mike Shore because literally the first thing he said when the room started was, I don't care if you're a staff writer or an EP, the best idea wins. Everyone's expected to pitch. No one's expected to just sit in a corner and not do anything. Because you hear nightmare stories about people going in the rooms and if the staff writer says something, the showrunner gives them a look like, why are you speaking, right? And so this was not that. Um, but for my personal responsibility, you know, that being said, it was kind of the same as everyone else's, which is pitch, pitch, pitch. And then we all equally got the same amount of scripts. In fact, we were all assigned a co-writing uh, like credit because there's, I think there were eight of us and there's only seven scripts. And Mike had written... The first one. In fact, he wrote like the first two or three, but he came into the room with this very uh, humble edict, which was, look, we might read these as a room and you might decide we need to change a bunch of this stuff. And if that's the case, that's the case. But that being said, um, everyone got a, a co-writing thing, including me. And I was paired up with the story editor, uh, whose name is Sylvia Alcala. And she was just so gracious and and so fantastic to write with she's on twitter too she's awesome but yeah that was my that was my responsibility for that room and then with chicago pd is it 26 episodes a season how many episodes uh right now we're on track for 22 but it might be more um we'll just have to see and my first so they split my contract down the middle first 20 week staff writer second 20 week story editor and so uh but my responsibility will be for one script and i mean they might come to me and say, hey, Sean, we're pairing you with someone else to write another script. But right now, it's looking like it's going to be one. And then how much from pitch to when you need to turn in a first draft, when you need to turn in a final draft, what does that timeline look like? I mean, it differs from show to show. So for Field of Dreams, it was more like we spent the first several weeks pitching and refining every single episode. And then when we went to script... We had basic outlines, everyone did, and we had a week to, to go from outline to finish script. For Chicago PD, it's a, a little more of an elongated process because, you know, as the newest writer in the room, which I am, I pretty much knew right away that my first episode was not going to be until the middle or, or back half of the season because everyone else who's experienced might get one or two scripts before they get to mine, because mine's kind of a standalone, which there are several of them every season. And so it's been a fairly prolonged process that, from what I've heard from others, is very different than other rooms. Like, I've turned in multiple outlines for my episode, and they'll come back with notes, and then I'll do a new outline, or, or not necessarily new, but a revamped outline, and then... I'll get more notes than a slightly less revamped, slightly less revamped. But then like the, the goal is to whittle it down to what they want. Right. And then you can go to script. And so that's a long way of saying that for me personally, the process has been months, but for some writers, if you're a, a co-producer or an executive producer, and this is your ninth room and you've been on this show for three seasons, you're expected to crank that bad boy up probably in 10 days or less. Right. I mean, they, to them, they're the, the length, the amount of time it takes for you to do it is commensurate with how long you've been in the room and how much experience you have. And my experience at this point is very little and my length in the room is very little. So they're not looking at me like, Sean, why haven't you written eight scripts? They're looking at me like, okay, we brought this guy in as a staff writer slash story editor. We know he needs to refine his craft and we know that he needs to understand perhaps the DNA of this show a little better. 
So their leeway with me is far more than everyone else. That's good to know. And again, that sounds like an actually yeah. very healthy and supportive environment. Right. Yeah. And and again, not every room is going to be like that. I've heard horror stories where it's like, uh, this is your 10th week in the room. Why haven't you finished the script? And it's like, oh my God, but that's not this room. Not at all. That's wonderful. That's good to hear. Um, also, what I'm hearing is it sounds like 80%, 90% of being a writer in a writer's room is outlining and is pitching and is story development. And it's like 10% is the actual going to draft. Yes, that that is accurate. Um, I mean, because once the outline's approved, you pretty much, I mean, they, they brought you in the room assuming that you're good with dialogue. They brought you in the room assuming that you're good at building tension and stuff like that. But you have to form your strengths around their vision for the show. And once that's done, once the outline's approved, I mean, like the some of the outlines for the show run 12, 15, 18 pages. And it's like converting that to a 45-page script ain't that hard. What, but you got to get that outline approved and it has to fit their vision and then you go do the thing, the 10% of it, which is to write it. It's great to hear. I, um, I work with a lot of writers and, and again, we, same thing. I, I prep them for the idea that 90% of what we're going to be doing together is, is working on that outline and really figuring mm-hmm. it out. And then once your treatment's done, the thing's going to write itself because you've already figured it out. Um, yeah. it's great to hear. Um, is there any advice or cliches that uh, you heard as as you were learning to write that either are totally true, like, oh man, that cliche is just like, it's absolutely accurate. Or is there anything that you were taught that's just like actually not applying whatsoever in the real world? Ooh, uh, two off the top of my head, like one for each of those. So one that I would say does not apply at all, in my opinion, and it's also frankly unhealthy i think for people to try to do it who don't naturally do it and can lead to all sorts of issues is that age-old advice of write every day like i i mean because i've heard people say if you don't write every day you're not a writer and it's like dude that's bullshit i don't write every day like a lot of tv writers don't write every day um and you better believe when paid writers go on break they don't write every day that's the last thing they're thinking about now they might be thinking about stories in their head but they're not sitting down and forcing themselves to write 8 10 12 pages um, so I always push back against that. I say, right when you can, unless you're getting paid for it and there's an expectation or a deadline you have to meet, then yeah, sure. We have to bend ourselves to their will. But if there's not right when you want to, right when you feel it, right when you, when it's undeniable and you can't not write. Um, so that's the one that I dislike. <laughs> um, the other one that I do like, which isn't necessarily writing advice, it's more of navigating Hollywood advice was that manager I mentioned earlier at Circle of Confusion, Ashley Burns, the the first piece of advice he gave me when I came here for that general, and I've never forgotten it, was he told me, he was like, Sean, the number one rule in this town is don't be a dick. Like, just just don't be a dick, right? Like, he told me we've worked with all-star writers, all-star directors, actors, who we've point-blank turned away and dropped because they were assholes. He's like, so don't do that. Like, if you're nice, if you don't yell at people... If you are helpful, in addition to being good at your job, you're going to get much further in this industry than if, you know, you're a POS or something. And so I really take that to heart. I I, I really try to not ever be that person who, you know, the, the abusive guys who throw staplers, like, what is this? Uh, or, or someone who just looks down on someone else because they haven't made it yet. I mean, there's just so much negativity in the world. There's no need for that stuff. 
That's uh, I love hearing both of those things. I love that. Cause I, yeah, I think a lot of people guilt themselves into, Oh man, I didn't write today or I didn't write this week. Um, and then also, yeah, just being kind. I mean, I can't tell you how many people, I mean, literally, uh, Matt and I were working together 10 years ago and like Matt and I still chat and because him and I still chat, you and I got to meet today. So again, there you go. You know, it's a small industry. Uh, I'm convinced there's only five or six of us actually out here, you know, and, uh, and I mean, that's what it feels like sometimes. And you you keep running into the same people. So be kind, you know, treat everybody like your friend because you never know when you're going to be working with them. Yeah. Um, as a writer, is there anything that you really struggle with um, and what comes really easy for you? Ooh, interesting. Um, I, I will say that, and, and this is might seem hypocritical or something, uh, I'm not the best at outlining, funny enough. I Almost every single one of my scripts, save maybe two, I did not outline. I had ideas, like broad strokes, like, oh, by this page, you know, this will happen or something, but I didn't really outline them. I just kind of had it in my head. Uh, so I'm, that's still a muscle that I'm refining and trying to build up because as, as we both said, it's, it's critical. If you're going to be in a room, um, I would say something that comes easy for me is writing prose that naturally, that has a natural flow to it, but also seems, um, I don't, I don't even know what the word would be like, like literate. Like it, like I, one of the biggest, um, compliments that I always get is that the prose that I write is beautiful or, or that it's, you know, it's, it's just so well written and that it flows off the page and that reading it is a joy. And, that's something I pride myself in. I do like doing that. Um, it's not something I don't think I could teach. Like I could, I wouldn't be able to be like, this is how you do beautiful prose. But I, I do want people to feel something when they read my work. And I think half of that is the story itself and the characters and stuff. But I also think half of it is how it's written. And a lot of my like most favorite books and short stories stuck with me because of the way that the prose was crafted, not just because of what happens, but because of the way the prose itself can make you feel. And I think it's the same to, to compare it to something. I think it's the same as, you know, seeing Roger Deakins' cinematography. You know, it makes you feel something. Even if you don't understand the ins and outs of, of lighting and lenses, when you see the images he puts on screen, it, you feel something. Even if it's not tied directly to the story, you feel something. And so that's kind of what I tried to do with my prose is I tried to have it be crafted in such a way that you're you're moved by two things you're moved by the story and you're moved by the way in which the story is written so i love that what's your uh writing routine like Ooh, very scattershot uh and inconsistent i would say you know if i mean because sometimes i'll go weeks without writing man like and i'm not even i'm talking like divorced from the writer's rooms that i've been in like just pretend that that hasn't happened i would go weeks without writing but then I would go three weeks every single day writing. Like I'm just, you know, cranking it out because I feel it. And, and I feel like I've, it's almost like one of my favorite TV shows is Adventure Time, which is yes. now off the air. But there's a character on there named Bimo. And whenever they ask Bimo to do something, it's like a little video game character. And, and she'll always say processing. And then like the processing bar comes up. I feel like that's kind of my, what's happening in the background of my brain before I decide to sit down and write. Like I've been processing for three, five, ten weeks. And then when the processing's finished and BMO's done, uh, that's when the writing starts. And so 
that's kind of my process um is is wait till it feels like it's all done in my head or recently outlining um and then when i sit down to write into the nitty-gritty i'll usually write three to five to seven pages a day and then the next day when i open the laptop i will reread all of it and sometimes i'll edit like then i'll edit as i'm going like i'll edit that first seven pages then reread it again and then continue on to the next three, five, seven pages. And I just do that till I'm done. And by the time I'm done, I've probably reread everything like 30 to 40 times. Um, and then when I'm done with that and I finish my first draft, I will export it to my iPad, pick up the Apple Pencil. I'll read it all the way through once, mark notes of things I want to change, do that. And then once I'm done with that draft, I print it out and take an actual pen and make more notes. And then once I'm done with that, I usually send it to people to read. I love that. Um, is there any advice that you would give to your younger self? So maybe Sean 10 years ago. Oh, man. I don't know. It's weird because 10 years ago, I hadn't even written a pilot. Uh, not not really. I mean, I could... I well, Maybe the more pertinent thing, at least for my own personal experience, might be advice i would give like younger writers maybe not even myself but sure. just younger writers in general i would say watch watch a lot of shows that you love like just find the shows that you love don't watch the shows that feel like homework now granted the shows that you love might feel like good homework because you're like this is what i want to do this is teaching me stuff right but i'm saying like you need to watch shows that get you excited because when you sit down to write something, that's what you're going to want to emulate. You're going to want to write something that excites you. Um, I've been like chasing this, I don't even know what you would call it, unicorn or something, which is I, I've watched, and the list is very small, but I've watched a few things in my life where when it was done, I thought, A, this is in, insanely incredible, and B, the feeling that I'm feeling right now is what I want someone else to feel when they read my work. Now, that only applies to a handful of things, including shows like Mad Men, Sopranos, Breaking Bad, and The Leftovers, and a few others, but specific episodes, specific climactic moments, and, and cut the black moments that you're just like, holy shit. So that's what I've been chasing. And so that's also maybe my other piece of advice to writers is try to try to make other people feel the things that that you're blown away by. Like, if you're blown away by a character moment, try to dig deep into that character moment and think, okay, why was I blown away by that? And how can I make someone else feel that same thing with my story? Is it prose? Is it the delivery of dialogue? Is it withholding information until the very end for a crucial moment? Like what, you know, reverse engineer it and figure out why you felt that way and how you can make others feel that way. You know, that's great advice. Do you, uh, do you have any thoughts on emulating what you love versus finding your own original voice? And what does that process look like? Oh, that's a great question. I mean, I, I do think, I, I do think a lot of people, I think what was it, Aaron Sorkin or someone said that like, you know, the masters all steal from someone else. Right. And I don't think you should uh, tacitly steal, but I do think if your goal is to make others feel something that you felt, then of course you're going to look to the masters, Right. I think it's a 50-50 proposition. I think you're taking things from TV shows and movies and plays and novels and short stories 
and maybe even compositions of music that you love and you're mixing it with stuff that you think needs to be said stuff that is important to you so if you want to combine the rat-a-tat-tat dialogue stylings of Aaron Sorkin with the sweeping cinematic grandeur and personal portraits of Steven Spielberg, then, hey, you know, be my guest. Go for it. Now, are you going to hit some roadblocks and people are like, hey, this is really expensive. We can't make this. Sure. But I think in finding your voice, the best thing you can do is figure out what, what things you have to say and what you've read or seen in the past that has spoken to you and trying to combine those to some effect. And I don't know exactly what that effect is. It's, it's kind of up to you. But that's kind of how I found my voice. Um, and it's worked out pretty well. I've loved getting to do this with you, Sean. Thank you so much for, for being on the show. And I can't wait until we get to chat again. Yeah, thank you, Russ. I appreciate it. And uh, I look forward to the next one, too. You can learn more about Sean on his Instagram, at Sean2Names. You can follow me at Write With Russ and follow the show at Screenplaying. We'll see you next week.